we're glad to be sharing the ministry of Redemption Church with you. Now join us as we receive the Word of God. Welcome everybody to Redemption Church! Where we never have tech issues, not one, not one, never, never. Welcome to Redemption Church in Plano. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. I pray that this Christmas season is merry and bright. My name is Chris Fluitt, and I greet you all. Praise the Lord, especially to our people online, everyone worshiping with us in the room, everybody worshiping with us online. I say praise the Lord to you all. Can we all say praise the Lord? We are in the second week of our sermon series. It is called Midwinter. Midwinter. It's not as popular as Midsummer. I mean, they, I mean, Midsummer, a guy uh, even wrote a, a night's dream over that, right? Yeah. But we are in this series called Midwinter. What are we doing in this series? Here's what we're doing we are using winter as a metaphor for the condition of the world. At the first Christmas, winter is dark, cold, lifeless, difficult, and lonely. Christ came to a world that was in midwinter. Do you see that? That it was dark, it was cold, it was lifeless, it was difficult. The Christmas story reveals how God responds to a world that is Midwinter, And the Christmas story also reveals how God will respond to us when we are midwinter. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we are sticking with this verse all throughout the month. It's also our scripture memory verse, one half of it. So let's read it together. We're pop- popping it up on the screen. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Last week, in the first week of this series, we talked about how the world at that first Christmas was lacking wonder, and it was lacking help. And God responds to this dark, struggling world by sending someone who is wonderful and someone who would be counselor, wonderful counselor. In your bleak midwinter, God will send wonder to you, and he will send help to you, and it will all come through Jesus Christ. Uh, We told you, yeah, you clap for that. Clap for Jesus. We told you last week about the 400 years of silence that preceded the first Christmas. And usually when we tell the Christmas story, we definitely get those wise men in there, right? We definitely get shepherds in there, right? They always make for cute nativities. You dress the kids up in them, right? It's really good. Sometimes if you really want to get a little bit brazen, you put the Herod story in there. Remember what he wanted to do? It was not a pretty thing. It's not something wonderful. And if you're really like wanting to be biblical, you get into, they they run, the family of Jesus runs to what nation? They run to Egypt, the refugees to Egypt. So, I mean, there, there are these things, but I tell you, I have never really heard this part of the story brought into the telling of the Christmas story. And it's right here that there were 400 years of silence that preceded that first Christmas. That is all the context 
of the story. You need to understand that. Everybody said 400 years of silence. For 400 years, God was silent. Heaven seemed closed and no prophet or revelation. And there were no supernatural demonstrations of God's power for 400 years. What's going on here? Why is God silent for 400 years? Well, let me just kind of walk through the Bible a little bit, and I'm going to see if you pick up on a pattern. All right, God creates the world back there in Genesis, right? And walks with Adam and Eve. They're kind of close, wouldn't you agree? But when Adam and Eve sin, they are removed from God's presence, and they are expelled from the garden. All right? The world continues to grow evil. So God sends instruction for salvation to a man named Noah. And and, and God speaks face to face basically with Noah. Gives him an exact uh, detailed plan on how to save everybody. But only eight people receive God's word. And the rest of humanity is separated outside the ark. While eight are saved within. Only eight. You go on a little bit. We're still just in Genesis. Israel had 12 sons. A guy named Jacob becomes Israel. He has 12 sons. But in their jealousy, they sell their brother Joseph into slavery. This evil act, generations later, reap a slavery for every son of Egypt. Every son of Israel. Sorry, So for 400 years now in Egypt, God is silent and seems distant and separate. For how many years? 400 years. 400 years until a deliverer comes named Moses. And God uses Moses to deliver the slaves. And God comes close to a rebellious people yet again. God gives his law to the people, but they do not keep it. And instead, the people worship other gods. Like that very day, they were worshiping a golden calf. They willfully sinned against God's commands. And for the rest of the Old Testament, there is a pendulum pattern of Israel separating and reuniting and separating and reuniting, and somebody say it with me, and separating and reuniting. That is the whole rest of your Old Testament. Again and again, this pattern shows up where here's God, we're close to God, and then we're separate. And guess what? The best times happen when you're close to God, and the worst times happen when you're separated from God. Anybody know that that's true in their own life? The God who formed man with his own hands. God formed man so intimately. He breathed his spirit into us. And it brought us to life. This God who is so near can become distant. This might make a little, some people nervous. And it it ought to make you a little nervous. This God who is so close to you can grow distant. Isaiah 59 and 2, during one of the times where they are growing distant, he gives this word. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not 
here. It's a scary verse, isn't it? Yeah. No one chooses this one as their life verse. No one has a little bumper sticker on the back of their car, you know, that says, your iniquities. have." <laughs> now, this is a scary verse. So let me ask you, is it possible to be separated from God? Your iniquities. In the, in the, in the Hebrew, it says, you know, your evil, your perversity, your depravity, your evil actions and thoughts have separated you from your God. It says your iniquities, but it also says your sins. There's actually a difference between iniquities and sins. And that word for sins means your unclean works and your command breaking. What have, they have, what have they done? They have hidden God's face from you so that he will not hear. Does this sound like the condition of the world at that first Christmas? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Does this sound like the pattern that we talked about over and over in the Old Testament? Yes. 400 years of silence. God was separate. God was hidden. God was not hearing for 400 years. I want you to really get in your mind the last prophet that had written was Malachi. Malachi. And now he was not only gone, but his children were gone. And their children were gone. And their children, I mean, we're talking like over 10 generations of people were gone from the last person who had heard from God and written it down. I want to tell you, it is possible for you to be in the very same condition as the world was in at the first Christmas. You can be separate from God. God can be hidden from your eyes and your prayers can go unheard and this is what i'd like to tell you is midwinter that's a midwinter where god is separate from you and god's face is hidden from you and all of your prayers seem to go unheard somebody say midwinter are you living midwinter are you in that same condition that the earth was in at that first Christmas. Well, let me just ask you this. Don't, you don't have to say this out loud, but you get this in your heart. Be real with yourself for a moment. When was the last time you heard from God? When was the last time something happened that you knew the Lord was talking to you? Now, let me tell you, if he talked to you, celebrate it. Celebrate it. Find somebody to celebrate it with I. If I have any talents, let me tell I would don't mean to brag, Rick, but one of my best talents is celebrating God with other people. I love to celebrate him moving in other people's lives. You don't have anybody to celebrate with? Pastor Chris would like a call. Go ahead and call me. I will gladly celebrate it with you. All right? Celebrate every time the Lord is near to you. Now, if he's not near to you, though, I want you to own that for a moment. Maybe I am midwinter if it has been a while since I've heard from God. When was the last time you saw God at work in your life? You just see things happen and you're like, God did that. Like, you just know it. You know it. You're like, I can't wait to tell somebody because God is at work. When was the last time that was? If it's been a while, I want to suggest that you could be midwinter. When was the last time you knew that your prayer 
was heard. I'm telling you, there are places you can pray with God. There's a, there is a spiritual place you can be with God that you know your prayer is heard before the answer is seen. Anybody know what I'm saying? That's a little thing we call in the biz. We call it faith. That's faith. There's sometimes you pray and you just feel like a faith. You started praying worried sick. You started praying freaking out. But then after talking to God, you knew heaven had heard your prayer. And fear went away. Depression went away. And a joy came in your heart. And some worship came in your heart. But if it has been a while since you've experienced anything like that, own it for a second. You are Midwinter. Are you separated from God? Are you separated from His will? Separated from His calling for your life? Are you distant from His word? Are there iniquities and sins separating you from God? If so, you're midwinter. Now, let me tell you something. If you're midwinter, we're not going to pick on you today. If you're midwinter, we're not going to whip you down and say there's something wrong with you. Because God doesn't treat the world that way when it's midwinter. And God doesn't treat you that way when you are midwinter. I have great news for you today. Christmas teaches us how God responds to us midwinter. And the picture is all found in one verse Isaiah 9, 6. One more time. It's our scripture memory verse. Let's read it together out loud. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want to tell you that the Mighty God comes midwinter. That's my title for today's sermon. Somebody say, The Mighty God comes midwinter. How many gods are there? Now, to be a little more specific, how many true gods are there? Because that's a little bit of a different question, isn't it? Because there are countless false gods. Countless. How many mighty gods are there? There's one. The mighty God is the true one God, one and the same. Because there is only one true God, all other gods are false. Do you agree? If there's only one true God, if something comes over here and says, hey, I'm a God too, don't believe that voice. Like God's over here going, I am the one true God. And somebody goes, man, I'm a God too. Which one are you going to believe? You're going to say, oh, I think they both have a voice. No, no, I'm telling you that there is one true God. And every other voice that says, I'm God, that's a lie. That's a falsehood. I want to tell you that there is only one true God. So that means all other gods are false. All other gods are weak. All other gods are powerless. Because our God is true. Because our God is the one true God, he needs to be true, and he needs to be strong and full of power. Don't you agree? Oh, I found God to be every bit of that. 
Well, let's look at some scriptures that tell us there's one God. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, say it, one. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. First Kings eight sixty. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. Isaiah 46 and 9. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6. One God. And Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. James 2 and 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Somebody clap your hands if you know about this one God. Oh, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I'm so glad. You know, it is a relief to know that there's only one true God. It's actually a relief. I can't stand it when I'm sent to the store to buy salad dressing. Let's say something salad dressing. Something as simple and menial as salad dressing. You walk to that aisle with the salad dressing. There's only like three, oper- three choices of salad dressing, right? No. It is everywhere. And I'll just stare at that. And I, I will end up going, oh, my gosh, I think Sarah should come buy the salad dressing because I don't know what to do. Because there's so many options. I don't know what to do. One of the biggest things about like getting a workout routine and working out is that most people stop at trying to figure out how to work out. And they look at, how should I work out? And there's 20,000 choices. And they're like, oh my gosh, I think I will work out next year after I spend this entire year studying how to work out. And so, like all these choices, can I tell you, knock off all the choices. There is only one True God. And if you found him, you have won the lottery. Your search is over. And you can be full of joy. You can be full of strength and wonder and hope. There is one God, and this is an essential truth of God's worth, of of God's word. How essential is it? Well, Jesus really kind of says it best. He says that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Jesus says that that is the most important of all the commandments. Mark 12 and 28. He, he says it. There is one God, but then who is Jesus? And a lot of people have this question. There is one God, but then who is Jesus? I want to tell you, people all over the world have this question. They have this question, and they're looking for somebody to talk to. I was in a a line with with a Christian at a Dollar General, very spiritual place here, just at a Dollar General line. I don't know what we're buying, but I'm just talking about, you know, some people have trouble understanding that Jesus is God, and he's also the Son of God. And I had three people all at once say, tell me about it. Do you have an explanation for that? And I'm like, well, let's just have a Bible study right here, right now. In the Dollar Central. Oh, I'm telling you, the worst thing a Christian can do is to receive this God and then get bored with him. 
to receive the truth and then just get bored with it. Let me tell you, the truth you have is as a, ever as bit as amazing as the first day you received it. And this truth you have, the world wants it. They want it. If you've grown tired of it, you wake up because the world's desperate for it. And you just start lifting up Jesus and somebody will ask you about him. And that is not a bad thing. That is a great thing. Isaiah prophesies that Jesus is the child born. Does it say it? Unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. The same child and son will be called the mighty God. Y'all agree with my interpretation of that. When we're talking about the son, we're talking about the mighty God. When we're talking about that child, we are talking about that mighty God. Jesus is the mighty God. Now, I want to tell you, Jesus is not a second God. He's not like suddenly, guys, there's a second God. That is not it. Jesus is not a second God. Why? Because there's only one God. And Jesus himself says there's nothing more important in Scripture to know than hero Israel, the Lord of God, is is one. Let's go a little further. Jesus is not a demi-god. That means like a half-god in Greek mythology, Roman mythology. They have a guy named Hercules. And Hercules is, he's got, the father is Zeus, and and then the the wife is a woman on earth. And so he's half-god and half-man. That's what you call a demi-god. Let me tell you, a half-god is less than a full god. Would you agree with that? A half-god wouldn't be a true god. A half-god would be a false god. Do you agree? All right. Because we've already decided that there's one god, one mighty god, and so that every other god must be false, every other god must be weak, and every other god must be powerless. But here we're talking about a mighty god. Everybody say mighty Oh, mighty God. He's not a half-God invention. We'll go one more further. Jesus is not an angel. There are some people that tell you, Jesus is an angel. He's an angel. They'll tell you he's the archangel. Michael, there are people that will knock on your door just to try to tell you that. And I'm going to tell you that he's not an angel. He's not a demi-God. He's not a second God. Jesus is the mighty God. First John chapter five, verse 20. We know also that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Oh, who are we talking about here? Uh, We're talking about God, but we're also talking about the Son of God. And they are both the true God. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are in the true God. Because he is the true God. And he is the eternal life. The Son given is how we know the true God. Because that Son, Jesus Christ. It's the true God and eternal life. And you know, the next verse, it's pretty good too. So let's look at it. First John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Is your mind tracking with me? Jesus is the true God. 
Jesus is not a false god or an idol. You see, if Jesus was an also-run, he was another thing, he was something else, then anything other than the true God would be a false God. But this, here we're talking, make no mistake, when he says he is the true God, he is talking about Jesus Christ. And if you are looking at anyone else other than God in Jesus Christ, you're looking at a false idol. Children, keep yourself free from false idols. I want to tell you there is nothing false about Jesus. He literally is the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You already know where I'm going next. Verse 14. The Word became It became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Colossians chapter one, verse 15 says this. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. How do you see something invisible? Jesus, that's how you see something invisible. He is the very image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God made visible. Colossians 1, 19, 4 verses later, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. If anybody tells you he's halfway God, have them read Colossians 1, 19. Because God makes sure all his fullness is in him. How full is full? Like a quarter of a tank, half a tank, three-fourths, five-ninths, what is it? No, all of it. The fullness of God is found in who? Jesus. Jesus is the mighty God, the Son of God, and Mary's Son. Say it with me. Jesus is the mighty God, the Son of God, and Mary's Son. Jesus is the mighty God. He is that same mighty God that spoke, let there be light. The very same God. Jesus is not an add-on to the deity. He is not a second God. Jesus is that one God that we read about. Jesus is not only God. Don't run away. Jesus is not only God. That seems kind of strange to say, right? Because how can you be only God anything, right? God's pretty impressive. How can he, he's not only God. You mean there's something better? Is there something you could add to being God? Well, how could you add anything to being God? Well, I don't mean to break anyone's brains. We're all so fragile this time of year. We're just trying to make it through. Courtney, don't let us break any brains in here. But Jesus is both God and the Son of God. No one's having a stroke. Didn't break any brains. So, thank you, Lord. Scripture says that God's spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived. The God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed Mary and she conceived. All right. So, understand this. The child born and the son given is the mighty God. And the father of this son is also God. Not a second God. Not a half God. The very same God. 
Jesus' biological father is not a human, but his biological father is God. The very spirit of God overshadows Mary. And that's Mary God. No, she a person. Somebody looks, somebody says, she a person. She's a sweet lady. You should meet her. Jesus' mama. We love Mary, but she's not a God. We honor who Mary is. She's blessed among all women, but she a woman. All right. Because of this, we can claim Jesus as God and also the son of God. In this way, God sacrifices himself on the cross and also gives his only son to die on the cross. Both of these things are true all at the same time. That God sacrifices himself because he is Jesus. But also he has his own son that he cares about. Anybody have a child that they care about? Do you think you're a better parent than God the Father? God your Father loves the human being that died on the cross. And so God Jesus is God, and he's also the son of God who died on the cross. Brain check, everybody. Brain okay. Brain okay. All right, good. Jesus is the mighty God, and he's the son of God, and he is also Mary's son. And that's not to be looked down on. That is a major, powerful thing. He's Mary's son because Mary's son is an equally important fact because this is how God steps into the human existence. God incarnates inside a human birth. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this, and the word became flesh. What flesh was involved? Mary's flesh. God doesn't have flesh. God's not flesh and blood. All right. I want to tell you, if he weren't, I'm talking about Jesus, the mighty God, he would be a second-rate false God. Amen, if it's true? If he weren't the son of God, he would just be another man. Babies are born every day. They're born every day. But this one is the son of God. Not only that, the only begotten Son of God. And that language is really important because guess who else is the son of God? Read the genealogy of Jesus and it goes all the way back to Adam and it says, Adam, the son of God. So Adam is also a son of God. Guess what? You are also sons of God. We can say daughters too, but the reason it says sons is because you're an heir. Sons are heirs. Sorry, that's ancient world talking that you're an heir. You are an heir of God. You are his progeny. You're his offspring. You are his creation. But it says this about Jesus concerning Jesus. It says only begotten son. He is unique. He's unlike anyone else. He is the only begotten son of God. Unlike Adam, unlike you, even unlike the angels who are called sons of God in parts of the Bible. Unlike all of those, Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. If he weren't the son of God, he'd be just another man. Now, if he weren't Mary's son, 
he wouldn't be a man at all. If you weren't Mary's son, he wouldn't be a man at all and would not be able to substitute himself for mankind. If he weren't Mary's son, he'd just look like us, but he wouldn't be like us. If he weren't Mary's son, he wouldn't be able to come and give a sin offering with his own blood and his own flesh. How important is this? Paul tells us like this. Anybody who says that Christ has not come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. It is so important that you understand that Christ has come in the flesh. He was in all points tempted just as we are. Every temptation you've ever felt, Jesus bore it. Every pain you've ever felt, Jesus bore it. How did he do it? As a man, as Mary's son. Can we hear it for Mary's son, Jesus Christ? Mm. If he weren't Mary's son, he wouldn't be a man at all and would not be able to substitute himself for mankind. That's some big knowledge right there. The child born, the son given, is Jesus, the mighty God. Now, I want you to imagine with me, imagine that we are in the wilderness encampment the wilderness encampment where we're in Israel. Well, we're actually in the middle of the wilderness. We are Israelites. We've just escaped from Egypt, and we're in the, the wilderness, and we're in the encampment. It would look a little bit like this right here. And so you see all around these edges, these are tents. And every tent opens up facing the center. Boom. What's in the center? The tabernacle. Everybody say the tabernacle. It's a portable temple. It's a tent. It's the tabernacle. Imagine with me. Use your imagination. Make Mr. Rogers proud. Use your imagination. Imagine we're Hebrews in the middle of the wilderness encampment. And imagine I walk up to you. Come here, Marshall. So right here in the middle of this wilderness encampment, I say, hey, where is God? Can you point me to God? I want to know where God is. Now, where would this Hebrew point me to? Would this Hebrew point, oh, he's up there somewhere. I saw him up behind that cloud just the other day. Would he point to the last miracle he saw? He said, I saw God do a miracle over there. He made manna form right over there, and we ate it. God's over there. He's got to be hiding behind that rock. Water comes out of that rock. He's hiding right behind that rock. No, where is he going to point? Marshall, where would he point? He would point right to the tabernacle. Thank you, Marshall. Very good. You're an honorary Hebrew today. A Hebrew would, are you wearing the belt buckle though? Oh, not today. He's got that awesome Jewish, uh, Dave, Star of David star, uh, belt buckle. It's awesome. A Hebrew would point to the tabernacle and say, God is right there. A Hebrew would point to the tent in the middle of the camp and say, there he is. He's right there. In fact, it's called the tent of meeting because people who go to this tent meet God. God's presence is on the inside of this tent. And when you are near this tent, you are that much nearer to 
God. If you're separated from God, you would go to this tabernacle and you'd have a blood offering made on your behalf. And now you would be able to go even closer to God. He would point to that tent, to that tabernacle, to that temple. Scripture teaches us that God can't be seen. Colossians 1.15, we read that one. John 1.18 is another one. Exodus 33 and 20 is another. Scripture also tells us that God is spirit. Jesus tells us that. John 4.24, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then Jesus teaches us this. Spirits don't have flesh and blood. Which is really good. Because I've seen some ghost movies that would be really scarier if they... The ghost had flesh and blood. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. I'm getting my holidays mixed up. Pardon me. Spirits don't have flesh and blood. Luke 24 and 39. So God's invisible. God's a spirit. Spirits don't have flesh and blood. Yet the Hebrew would point us right to the tabernacle and say, God is right here. How do we Explain this. Can the tabernacle be seen? Yeah. Can God be seen? No. Can the tabernacle be touched? Yeah. Can the tabernacle, can, can, can God be touched? Mm, no. Right? You see the difference here? So he's pointing to this tabernacle that can be seen, that can be touched. How do we explain this? Because I'd like this tabernacle back up here on the screen here. Inside that physical, tangible, touchable tabernacle dwells the invisible spirit of the mighty God. The actual picture, there it is. Inside this physical, tangible, touchable tabernacle dwells who? Yeah, the the invisible spirit of the mighty God. You are not correct, you are not incorrect, sorry, to point at this tabernacle and say, there is God. With that understanding, let's go to John chapter 1. We already read this verse. It's John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That word for dwelling, I've got it right there in parentheses. What's that word in parentheses? Tabernacled. That is the exact use of that Greek word. The Word became flesh and tabernacled. Among us. Oh, that's a great coincidence, isn't it? No, not at all. That was meant to teach us. John literally writes that God, the Word, became flesh and tabernacled among us. Christians, when someone asks you where God is, you point to the tabernacle named Jesus. Jesus is is that tabernacle. He is that tent with the invisible spirit of God inside. And Scripture has so much to say about it. One place in Hebrews, it says, you know, there's a veil inside the temple, right? And that veil is separating people from the holiest presence of God. Hebrews teaches us that that veil is the very flesh of Jesus Christ. Beyond the veil is the most holy presence 
of God. Beyond the flesh of Jesus Christ is the very mighty God that is spirit and is invisible and has all power. It's all in Jesus. God in Christ is what the temple, the tabernacle, was always meant to teach us. Do you know what the temple in heaven looks like? So we're talking about heaven now. We're, we're skipping to the end of the book for a second. Skipping to the end of the book. You skip to that end of the book, and it tells us about the temple. Now, everything in heaven is the finest, polished version, right? There's not a better version of you than you in heaven. There's not a better version of our relationship with God than our relationship with God in heaven. Everybody agree with that? It's the most pure. It's what it was always supposed to be. In fact, everything you see in this world is not how it's supposed to be. In heaven, that's what it's supposed to be like. And so we have this picture of a temple in heaven. Do you know about this? What does the final version of the tabernacle look like? What does the tabernacle look like in its most perfect version? Ha. Huh. Revelation 21 and 22. John the Revelator says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Let me make sure everybody understands that when they were walking around in the wilderness with that tabernacle, it was showing them the true picture of what it would be like for God to be with us. They're all carrying around this tabernacle. It's a bunch of skin on the outside, but it's the Spirit of God on the inside. And then we have Jesus Christ walking among us. What is He? He is the Lamb of God. And beyond the veil that is His flesh is the Lord God Almighty. And this is such the perfect communion with God that in heaven they have completely removed an earthly tabernacle. They have removed an earthly temple. And now the temple is you see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb. And He is the Lord God Almighty. He is both the Lamb and the Lord God Almighty. He is the meeting place where you would go to meet God face to face. The temple in heaven will not be a tent, will not be a stone building. The temple in heaven will be the lamb. That's the physical man, the child born, the son given. But mark my words, he is also the almighty God. For all eternity, if anyone were to, I don't know, get a little confused in heaven and walk up to you and say, where's God? You'd point them to Jesus Christ, the tabernacle, the temple, the dwelling place. Right there is the mighty God, the son of God, 
and Mary's son. And also your best friend. This is powerful doctrine. This is important truth. I want to tell you this is God honoring and Jesus honoring all at the same time. It's the gospel. It's the truth. But it must be more than scriptures that we're able to quote. Or a statement of faith that we can point to on our website. It needs to be more than just head game knowledge. The truth of God is more than a belief system. It must be a truth that is applied. Somebody say applied. To our life and lived out day to day. So here is how we apply this truth that Jesus is the mighty God. As we're drawing to a close, here is how you apply this truth and let it be more than facts and figures that you're able to quote. The mighty God comes midwinter. That first Christmas teaches us how God responds to us midwinter. The mighty God came to a world that had been rebellious and sinful. The mighty God came to a world that had rejected his commands. The mighty God came to a world that had chosen to worship other gods. So what about you? Have you been rebellious and sinful? Me too. Somebody say me too. Thank you, mighty God, that you still come to us when we are rebellious and sinful. Have you failed to keep God's commands? Me too. Somebody say me too. Thank you, mighty God, that you still come to us. Have you run after other false gods? Money, fame, pleasure, power, on and on the list goes the gods that are false that we've run after. Somebody help me say, me too. Oh, can you thank him? Thank you, mighty God, that you still come to us even though we have been unfaithful to you, mighty God. He came to us when we did not deserve it. That's the story of Christmas. He came to us when we did not deserve it. He did not come because we deserved it. So can I just, Merry Christmas to you. Can you just take this, receive this gift right here? Here it is. Stop trying to deserve it. Somebody say Merry Christmas. That's some good gift giving right there. Stop trying to deserve it. The very condition of the world at that first Christmas shows us we can't ever deserve it. He didn't come because we deserved it. He came in spite of the fact we did not deserve it. Now I want you to get ready to talk to this mighty God of ours. This Jesus Christ whom we all share together. We're going to spend time talking to him. And I want you to talk to him. He's the true God. I want you to honor him today as the true God. I want you to honor the truth that he is Lord and the one true God. I want to tell you that very same mighty God is here right now. And he's not here because we deserve it. He's not here because, man, we really knocked it out of the park singing today. He's like, well, they did a good job singing. 
I think I'll come to them today. No, that's not why he's here. He's not here because we deserve it. He's here because he loves us. I love you and that's why I've come. He can do a miracle for you today. It's probably because the preaching was just so spot on today. That's right. No, not at all. He, he, can, he wants to do a miracle today, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you, and that's a way he could show you he loves you. Oh, would there be anything better to happen this Christmas than for him to save you today? He can save you. Not because you deserved it. Not because you learned five verses in the Bible you can quote. You quote them perfectly. No, that's not it. Not because, you know, you are now doing your best to not sin some of the time. No. No. He'll save you. Not because you deserve it. Because he wants to be with you for eternity. That's why he came to earth in the first place. He wants... To not be an invisible God. He wants to be a God with flesh and blood. That you can see. And you can embrace. He can forgive all your sin. Aren't you glad you don't have to deserve that? I feel the wonderful presence of the Lord in this place. Mighty God, you're in this place, and I thank you. Can you just reach out to him right now? Jesus, I thank you, mighty God, for being in this house right now. Lord, I want you, Lord, to reach out to us. For more information about redemption, look us up online at redemption-church.com. We want to hear from you, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or even our anonymous question text line at 214-856-0550. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.